welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all their support with these podcasts. Joining me today, we have April Lockhead. April is a occupational therapist and has been for 31 years in Scotland. She's been involved with all sorts of things from mental health to stroke to care of the elderly, discharge planning, and now has got a role working for the Scottish Ambulance Service, doing a hybrid role, I guess, between some trauma orthopaedics and some discharge and admission avoidance. Anyway, she's going to be chatting us through what her role is and, and how that works, but really with a a view specifically towards falls. April, thanks so much for coming on to chat. No, you're you're welcome, David. Thanks very much for the invite. It's nice to be asked along. So I guess let's do a little bit of kind of demographic-y stuff first. Mm -hmm. Who falls? Who are the at-risk group for this phenomenon? I suppose there's lots of reasons people fall. And I think when you think of the ambulance service and you think of triple nine, you think of the people that fall with the major traumas. And obviously that's part and parcel of falls for the service. Within the work that I do and the main focus that I have is the group of people who are vulnerable, frail, who fall, who predominantly don't need to go to accident and emergency, but they are having problems. And we know from research and from experience that once somebody has a fall, that they they can go on and they have subsequent falls, which then can increase up until they have a fracture. So that's the group of patients that I focus on most within the ambulance service, because these are the ones that I think that we can hopefully divert away from the emergency department unless it's necessary, but also get these people the right care at the right time in the right place to keep them safe and keep them at home and keep them as independent as possible. How much of a problem is this? Because I guess we're all kind of aware that folk take a tumble, but... How much of a burden are these falls that don't end up necessarily sat in A&E as a major trauma? Well, I think if you look at the statistics of the ambulance service, and if we look at this group of patients, and I don't like the phrase, but in terms of the statistics, we look at what we call an uninjured faller. So that's somebody that doesn't have a traumatic fall, but they have fallen, but they've they've not fractured, they're not life-threatening, they don't have life-threatening injuries. And this group of people are the highest standalone reason that people phone 999. So these calls are 11% of demand. So that's the biggest group of patients that we have that are phoning us because they have fallen at home. And I think that a lot of the times that's because we are open 24-7, 365 days a year. And where else do you go when you've had a fall, you're feeling that you're not coping very well and it's 999 that get that call so over and above all your trauma calls falls is the biggest standalone reason that people phone treble nine that's really interesting i think when i first started dabbling in pre-hospital care i assumed it was two-thirds trauma one-third maybe medical and the medical stuff was all cardiac arrests and sepsis and all big stuff but actually the burden of the workload is around the smaller stuff, but equally, you've kind of alluded to its significance in terms of a small fall actually isn't just a small fall, it's it's the start of a whole series. It can be the start of a, a whole catalyst of events. The biggest reason that somebody phones treble nine above a fall is for what we call generally unwell. Now, that's a kind of hodgepodge group, so that's where it isn't a well-defined diagnosis and we don't have a, a code for it. 
And I think that within that group, that's where the frailty patients sit. So we've got the generally unwell as the top hitter for 999. It then goes falls, it then goes difficulty in breathing, it then goes mental health, and it comes down and actually like your stroke, you're out of hospital, cardiac arrest, and your trauma come way down the list from these. So it's it's right up there at the top. Falls can be very complex. It can lead, it can have you know huge severity as well as minor injury or non-injury, but it's right up there at the top. And interesting that actually we really don't spend time teaching it or thinking about strategies to manage it on all the courses from from clinical medicine right the way through to postgraduate pre-hospital courses. It's kind of a footnote, but from what you're saying, it it makes up a huge burden of disease. Yes, you know, falls is very complex. And I think there's lots of components to it. So it's not just about somebody's physical health, it's about their mental health, it's about their social circumstances, it's about their environment, it's about their routine. And that all makes it not very straightforward. It makes it very complex. When you're in somebody's house and they've had a fall, you're in a really prime position to be able to pick up a huge amount of information that's relevant to that patient. So it's not just the significance of the mechanism of injury and has that person fallen, you know, is there blood loss, is there a fracture and all these things that means that somebody absolutely has to go to ED. But if you're in somebody's home, you get to see how they're coping at home, what kind of lifestyle they're living, where their environment is and how they're coping overall. And these are all huge factors that then can help that person be on the right pathway and the right journey to not have further falls or not have more serious impacting falls. I guess you know, these things are probably easier to manage at the extremes where somebody's completely uninjured or or has got significant obvious injuries because the decision making there is is pretty straightforward. What are the kind of consequences of the fall at home without maybe you know a significant traumatic injury? What kind of things can lead on from there? If we take somebody, I do, when I do training with any of the the ambulance crews, I try to, first of all, get them to kind of consider the patient's baseline. You know, don't just take that snapshot of you seeing somebody in the response to a treble night call, but have a bigger look at the picture as to how somebody copes at home. And I also get them to consider the detrimental impacts of, of taking somebody to the emergency department. Yes, taking somebody to the emergency department when you're concerned about them. I totally understand. And there are times when these patients need to go for that further examination, perhaps scans, x-rays, blood works, whatever. But when we take somebody to the A&E department and they don't necessarily need to be there, we have a huge impact on the loss of daily living skills. Now, we also subject them to perhaps hospital-acquired infections and somebody with some sort of cognitive impairment we can absolutely catapult that and make that worse. There's a great piece of research that says that for every 10 days that you spend in hospital, you lose 10 years worth of your muscle bulk. So that's fine if you're an Olympic athlete because you'll bounce right back after that. But if you're somebody that's living at home with a lot of multi-pathologies and chronic conditions and you're not moving about terribly much and you're just ticking over in a day, to move out of that environment and into something like an A&E department where there potentially could be long waits and examinations and out of routine, you completely take away their independent living skills really quite quickly. And that then has a huge impact on somebody being able to manage to get back home again. We're all very aware of postponed discharges and and people that, that stay in hospital a long time to have care packages awaited for them. 
and people who have huge impacts on their mobility because the nature of the beast is that when you're in hospital and you are having examinations, you're in bed a lot of the time. You're at the mercy of what the routine in that ward is. You can be moved from ward to ward. You can be boarding. You're not necessarily getting up to go to the loo on your own. You're having to wait for supervision or you're having commodes brought to your bedside. And all these things have a huge impact on somebody who's chronically unwell, who's living at home with a baseline of independent living skills. Even our interventions have got a significant impact away down the line. And I certainly hear what you say in terms of you know, A&E being a place that is disruptive to cognition. I think even as a bystander in A&E, it's a place that is pretty confusing and pretty chaotic. And to be there when you don't necessarily have your faculties fully with you anymore is, is going to be a, a very stressful experience, I guess. Absolutely. I've done a lot of work recently with Alzheimer's Scotland. We're very interested in some of the pieces of work that I've been doing in, in this area, particularly the, the patients who have a cognitive decline, a cognitive impairment. They very much depend on what is familiar to them, a familiar routine, familiar faces, a familiar place, things that give them that reassurance that they can cope with the day and that kind of feeds them into what's going on. And the minute we take that away and do something really scary like being in the back of an ambulance, being in an a &E department where there's lots of noise and lots of disruption can cause a huge level of anxiety and can actually be really quite detrimental to someone. Because once we kind of have that catalyst of events around somebody's cognition and anxiety, it can be very distressful for them and for relatives um, and also can have a huge impact on them being able to be turned around and, and, and discharged home safely at that same level. Yeah, and certainly uh, all the stuff around delirium in terms of that kind of mm, stepwise progressive absolutely. loss, and you never quite get back to the level you were at before. So it's a multi-hit pathology. I wanted to touch back on something that you mentioned earlier around the fall being potentially the start of a series of falls leading up to trauma. I just wanted to, to, to get you to dig into that a little bit about why there is this kind of progression of one fall not being an isolated incident, but being a, a whole series. There's a lovely cycle, which is nicely sort of laid out, that once you have one fall, you significantly lose your confidence to mobilise and become active because you're frightened you're going to fall again. The minute you lose that confidence and limit your activity, you then subsequently become more vulnerable to falling again. And then the cycle happens and that cycle keeps going. So the less you're active, you see this a lot, anybody who works in healthcare and anyone who's had a relative, I think, who's had a fall, you can see that you're frightened that that person's going to fall again. You kind of advise them not to go up and move about without help. But when we do that and when we limit somebody's mobility, we therefore make them more subsequently vulnerable to further falls because we're taking away that muscle built, that activity, that routine. And that's the way the spiral goes. So unless we can catch somebody who's had a fall in the earliest instance and put them into programs where we can be looking at building up their confidence, keeping their home exercise programs going, maintaining their independent living, looking at things like reablement, home care and physiotherapy, occupational therapy and daycare. These are all the things that can help build somebody's confidence and maintain their skills. And without that, this cycle will just keep going. You know, you have a fall, you don't move about so much, you become less mobile, you fall again which means you become less confident again, you become even less mobile, and then subsequently that can lead up to a fracture. And a fractured necrophema, a fractured hip, has got 
subsequent, you know, huge impact on somebody's life. And when I looked into this in great detail recently, the, the facts around that are, you know, 30% of people over 65 who have a um, neck of femur fracture, they can die within the first year after surgery. 20% of these people don't mobilise again and another 30% don't actually make it home. So what I try and say to the crews in particular when I'm doing training is if we can catch somebody really early on in that cycle of falling, potentially we could be looking at saving a life because if we're preventing a neck or femur fracture happening, we're preventing that person having a 30% chance of dying a year after. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, historically, I guess it was very straightforward. You know, you picked somebody off the floor, dusted them down. If they were broken, you sent them to A&E for x-rays. If they weren't broken, you said to Tara and left them be. But actually, by the time they get to that fracture, we've lost the opportunities to prevent the injury. And we've kind of missed the boat from what you're saying. Absolutely. And I think that's the way it's been traditionally. And I think that being an occupational therapist and coming into something like the ambulance service lets me look at things slightly different and lets me look at the, the, the sort of preventative side of things. I mean, obviously, within the ambulance service, it's designed and the mechanism is that, you know, it's an emergency service. It's, it's a, for life-threatening events. But what we do have is the opportunity that we're seeing all these 11% of patients who are having their early-on falls, that we have a huge opportunity to get in there in a preventative model. And that seems to be something quite new to something like an emergency service. So if we can get into that preventative slot of identifying people early in this cycle, then we could be preventing these people having these subsequent falls. And that is something quite new because when I speak to crews and when I work with them, everybody's been there and seen a patient who's had a neck of femur fracture, a fractured hip, and everyone's experienced that. But what seems to be quite new is the, the concept of do you realise, you know, what the impact is to that patient after that? And that seems to be quite new information. But it's information that the crews are taking on to say, you know, well, actually never gave that a thought. And if I could be preventing a neck of femur fracture, then I could be preventing somebody from having this huge impact of never getting home again, never mobilising again, and, and potentially, you know, death after that year within surgery. So that preventative slot at the very beginning of somebody falling, can have a huge impact. Absolutely. So let's dig into that preventative aspect. What can we do about this? We've identified that it's a significant problem, that it's got a, a huge amount of population at risk. And we know that we do see early fallers on their sort of first and second falls before they are really stuck in that spiral. So what can we do to break them out of it? Well, just now we know that a piece of the work that I've done um, when I first started was looking at a national database so that we know that everywhere in Scotland has got every health and social care partnership, we have um, a false pathway and that we can refer so that if anyone sees a patient at home and, and the majority of these false pathways are not just open to ambulance crews, but they're open to relatives, they're open to patients as well to self-refer. And if we put somebody into that slot of referring them, then we're basically asking and presenting the patient for investigation of that fall. So that means that the patient can have that fall investigated. Is it something medicinal? Is it something to do with hypertension? Is it something to do with medication? Is it something to do with side effects? Is it something to do with the environment? So that can be investigated and looked at. And then subsequently, things like home exercise programmes and getting their confidence up and helping them to maintain their lifestyle at home can go on. The false pathways are there. 
What's frustrating is that we don't use the falls pathways very well. And in Scotland overall, we only have roughly 8% falls referrals being made. What we do know is that that a lot of crews, what the data does tell me is that a lot of crews are assessing somebody at home as safe to stay at home, but they're not referring them. So it feels to me as the clinical lead around this that we're doing the hardest, but we're being able to assess somebody at home and say to them, you know, I don't feel you need to go to A&E to have any kind of examination or, or intervention. And we're saying to somebody, you know, we can leave you at home, but what we're not doing is putting them into that investigative pathway. And that's part and parcel of the work that I focus on a lot is trying to build up an awareness and a knowledge and an input so that staff can, you know, pick up that phone and, and make that referral. The other piece of work that I really want to do is we've got the patient transport service, which is our ambulance care assistance. And as far as I can see just now, there's not been a lot of work done where we open up the referral lines for that group of staff. And that group of staff, I feel, have got a huge role to play because on the whole, they get to know their patient groups very well because they establish a rapport once somebody needs the patient transport services to perhaps go to day hospital and outpatient appointments. They get to know these crews and they can very easily, when I speak to them, they tell me, they can notice when they start to see somebody on that downward spiral. And a big piece of work I want to do that we're piloting at the moment is getting the patient transport crews right there at the beginning of a preventative model and making those referrals when they start to see somebody struggling so that we're also now getting into that side of things before A&E, so before a 999 call, let's try and get people even earlier again into the system and having their falls investigated with the patient transport crews. It's really interesting. And I guess the other kind of privileged group are the kind of the primary care nurses and the primary care team in that, that they're also going out to patients before that initial fall comes in. But seeing people in their own environment and having the ability to potentially intervene before that cycle starts. Absolutely. I think anybody from health and social care who gets into that slot of seeing somebody at home and having that discussion around being afraid of falling, feeling that they might be ready to fall in that sort of space, there's so much information can be gleaned. And the thing is, when you put somebody in their own home, you're on their ground. So, you know, they can absolutely kind of give you a, a big picture as to how they're coping, how they're managing, what they want to be able to do in a day. And that's vital information in terms of maintaining somebody's lifestyle and independent living skills at home. I guess that's the other interesting aspect of this. I suspect all of us that have potted about in the pre-hospital environment for a while will have been to, to the older person who has fallen potentially has laying on the ground not wanting to bother anybody for a while we eventually get on scene and get them up and check them over and injured or not they don't want to trouble anybody they don't want to be a burden and therefore they're often quite reluctant to be formally assessed or to, to sort of go into that pathway how are we best to manage patients who perhaps clinically or supportively should be put into a pathway but but are, are reluctant to do so I think knowledge is the key here and I think being aware of what your local environment can offer in terms of what services there are within the sort of health and social care side of things and sometimes within the volunteer sectors as well and 
even things like the community alarm services and we all the fire and rescue services now are also doing the home safety visits. And I think just knowing that you've got those services there. And I think that, that everyone has a responsibility to know locally what is there for patients, particularly around sort of falls and frailty, because every area is different. You know, sort of rural areas to the really urban areas, there will be a variation in some areas, for instance, I know where there's services where people kind of buddy up and do meals. So somebody who lives on their own can make a meal for a neighbour, but they've not known, so they match up these people together. In some of the bigger areas, there's day groups. I've heard of a, a fantastic group recently called A Sausage Roll and a Shimmy. Obviously, it's not going on because of COVID at the minute, where it's a, a kind of local kind of get-together for something to eat and a little exercise programme. So these are just kind of like small snippets of things that happen in your local area. But there's also that element, I think, as health professionals get into patients to know not just what services there are, but be, to be able to give patients the information around building up their confidence and, and how important it is to keep active and how to maintain your independent living skills. And I think with family in particular, I think a lot of times family, they're very concerned about their relative. Someone's had a fall or they look like they're going to fall, they look vulnerable and they want to protect them. But I think we have a responsibility to advocate the need for activity and maintaining that daily routine to kind of keep somebody as fit and as active as they can for as long as they can. Keeping folk moving is definitely an uphill battle. And certainly in the secondary care world, I spend half my time turning patients out of bed and, and making them sit up and stand up and well, <laughs> downstairs and all, all, that, all that side of things, just because of that sarcopenia, the muscle wastage, the, kind of the longer term consequences. The other thing I just wanted to, to touch on there, you mentioned COVID and I, I know it's a bit of a dirty word and we, we have been trying to avoid it a bit as a topic on here, but, but in terms of the impact that COVID has had on the elderly, on their social access, on their wider social and physical health, I guess this really is a, a huge area of, of damage and, and must be a significant area of concern. Absolutely. And I think you touched on that a wee bit earlier on because, you know, a lot of the, the patients in this group that we're discussing, they don't want to bother anybody. And everyone in every walk of health I speak to recently, nobody wants to present themselves to an A&E department or a GP surgery for fear of catching COVID. And people are kind of holding on to symptoms and not going until, you know, it's absolutely necessary. So I think when we're engaging with all patient groups, this maintaining a level of activity and encouraging people to have things investigated and looked at as soon as possible and, I, and I'm a great advocate that we give the patients the right to deal with their own health issues and guide them towards where they can go and I know that, that sometimes that can be online but it can also be on the television it can also be on the telephone and just engaging with staff when they get a chance with them in their house. To kind of look at rounding this up if I'm there in somebody's home they've had a fall they're perhaps not got a significant injury in terms of major trauma what's the sort of advice in terms of who's taken how to manage the situation there and how to engage with these local falls teams so right so you're a healthcare professional and you're in somebody's house do you mean or you're a relative or just whoever i think as a as a basics responder in the first instance so either as a paramedic or as a nurse or as a doctor having been called to that sort of first treble nine type fall how do you get the advice as to, as to where to go from there all the false pathways for the ambulance crews are all sitting on at SAS, which is our kind of website. And there's also the therapist, the tablet that the crews have. All the phone numbers are there. And anyone who's working in the group of patients, I say, you know, like have that, that, that information is there. 
and particularly now that we're getting the flow navigation centres up and running, engage with these teams. Get to know what's there in your local area. The flow navigation centres are going to be absolutely indicative to this to getting patients the right care at the right time. Tayside, where you're at, is up and running and leading the way on that and hopefully everyone else will follow. But in the meantime, I think it's about engaging with and finding out what's there in your local areas. All the health and social care partnerships can be identified in that and you can find that on NHS and Forum. And most GP surgeries have that as well. And I say to all staff, engage with these. You know, you don't necessarily feel you need to phone these pathways just when you're making a referral. Because I find that some folk are kind of hesitant because they'll say, I mean, what kind of information do I need before I phone these pathways? And my advice is to phone and engage with the pathways. You know, just get to know them. Let them get to know you so that you know what times they work, what operations they do. And then you can advise patients that you're with as to what exactly is going to happen next once you've made that referral. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I think that's really sound advice. And I guess one of the nice things about being in Tayside at the moment is having that prof to prof line. So having the sort of mm. the ability to ring a senior clinician who's got the experience of dealing with patients, but also is sitting in front of a computer with access to all the information that you might possibly need to try and target that right care, right place, right time bullseye. Yeah, I don't think we necessarily, I mean, I love the idea of the designated prof-to-prof lines, but I think that there's already kind of professionals out there that can answer your questions and can give you advice and direct you already anyway. You know, I think within the, particularly the health and social care partnerships, within social care, within the community alarm sector, all these people are very welcoming with you for them to say, can I just ask you, can I run this past you? Can I just ask what you could do for my patient in this instance? And I say, engage and just get to know so it's kind of like informal prof to prof lines if you like but it's just getting to know what's there in your area for your patients absolutely and i guess with 11 percent of the travel lines coming in being fools this is not going to be time wasted this is absolutely going to be time well spent absolutely. that's fantastic april we've been asking all of our presenters to to give us kind of three takeaway top tips and um, just wondering what your suggestions would be for basic responders i guess going out for that next travel line for a fallen patient now, they're a wee bit woolly, but my first one, to get a patient's baseline. So by that, I mean, don't just compare how your patient's coping by how you're seeing them in that instance of the fall. Dig deeper. Look at how they manage on an average day when this hasn't happened and compare the presenting condition of them with the fall to what they were like a day ago or a couple of days ago so that you get to know what somebody's baseline is rather than just assessing their need on what you're seeing there at that time when they've had a fall because that can be a bit of a false indicator. The second one I think that's really important is consider the detrimental impacts to going to ED. You know, if somebody needs to go to the emergency department, then that's absolutely. But consider the fact that would that impact on somebody's daily living skills would they be more susceptible to hospital-acquired infections? Are we going to impact on somebody's cognitive impairment? And the third one, which I was just talking about there, is engage with your local pathways and just get to know them and establish a rapport for what's available and what might not be. And also engage with the emergency department triage nurses because they will absolutely know about the services. All the emergency departments now are, are very much gearing up to having other healthcare professionals such as physios and occupational therapists and a kind of wraparound service within ED. So engage with them as well. So it's about engaging, getting a patient's baseline and consider as ED the absolutely right place for your patient. 
that's fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your expertise and some of that passion as well, because you can hear in your voice that you know, this is something that is hugely important to you and, and I can understand why. We had a brief conversation earlier, and I know that falls doesn't, in inverted commas, sound sexy, but, you know, I think that this is, is being within the ambulance service is not something I thought I would ever have been at the beginning of my career, but in terms of this group of patients, and, and I think we're not just talking about the over 65s here, we're talking about any adult that's got chronic conditions and multiple pathologies, the people that are most vulnerable to falling. And yeah, I am absolutely passionate about doing the right thing for these folk, but also for the staff that are going to see these patients to make sure they're absolutely equipped as much as they can be. Well, thank you for, for coming on and sharing that wisdom with us. And thank you for asking. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.